to look at it, to consider it, to lament it, and ultimately to celebrate it. How can we celebrate that an innocent man was found guilty of false charges, nailed to a cross, and then lifted up to die on it? We can celebrate it because he was not only a man, he was also God. God, the Son of God, who put on flesh and exchanged his perfect righteousness, giving it to us while taking away our sin and putting it on him. And because of that, he went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sin. Why? So that God the Father could declare his believers and followers to be righteous, to be right with him, so that God the Father could adopt us as sons and daughters and love us with the same love that he has for his eternal son. The cross is the central message of the Bible. It's the central message of the Gospels, and it's the central message of Paul's preaching and all his letters that we have in the New Testament. And when Paul was sharing the message of the cross, he saw many people saved by it, but he also saw many people reject it because, as he said, they found it to be foolish. He saw other preachers try to add to the message of the cross to make it sound better. Some added eloquent words. Others added the wisdom of the Roman and Greek philosophers to try and make it sound better. But Paul didn't. So Paul, in our text that we're about to read from 1 Corinthians, deals with this question. Why do so many people reject the message of the cross. His answer is instructive to me as a preacher of the message of the cross, and it may be instructive for you, those of you who are sharing the message of the cross with your friends, with your family members, with your coworkers. And I hope it's helpful to those of you who have not accepted the message of the cross yet. Let's consider it together tonight. Please give your attention to God's word from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. The Apostle Paul wrote, and the Holy Spirit says to us tonight, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved by it, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has, God not, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews 
and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here ends the reading of God's word. The Apostle Paul was perhaps the greatest evangelist and the greatest apostle in all of the Bible and in all of church history. He traveled throughout the Roman and Greek world preaching the message of the cross over and over again, preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in verse 18 of our passage, Paul tells us that the message of the cross divided everyone into two camps. Those who reject it as foolishness and those who embrace it as the power of God. So we must examine our hearts tonight and ask ourselves, in which category do I find myself tonight? What does Paul mean by the term word of the cross at the beginning of verse 18? The word of the cross is, as I've said, the central message of the Bible in that everything in the Old Testament pointed forward in time to the cross that was coming. And everything in the New Testament pointed backwards in time towards the cross and as, as an historical event of eternal consequence. First, the Old Testament. The entire pattern of the Old Testament points to God sending a substitute, a sacrifice to take away the penalty for sin. In Genesis and Exodus, we see this many times, but nowhere more so than in the Passover. Right before the Passover, God's people, Israel, were enslaved in Egypt. And Pharaoh, who was in charge of Egypt, would not release them to leave. So, in the tenth and most devastating plague, God sent a destroyer to kill the firstborn in every home. And so that the judgment would not fall on the homes of Israel, God instructed the people of Israel to sacrifice a lamb, a lamb without blemish, and put its blood on their doorposts so that, as God said in in Exodus 12, verse 13, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The blood of the lamb saved God's people from death, while at the same time, death fell on those who did not live under the blood of the lamb. God accepted the lamb as a substitute. We know that the Passover pointed forward in time to the cross because Jesus made this clear during the Last Supper, which was the Passover meal. Jesus said that the blood of the Passover lamb pointed forward in time to him when he would shed his blood, which he was about to do on the cross, to save his believers, to save his followers from a death that would be an eternal death. So after God delivered his people in Exodus from slavery in Egypt, 
God came to dwell in their midst when his glory came down and filled the tabernacle that was in their camp, which raised a crucial question because the sinfulness of the people of Israel made his presence in their camp problematic. The question that was raised is, how can a holy and righteous God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? So after the book of Exodus, in the book called Leviticus, in chapter 16, right in the center of the book, God tells us how he can dwell in the midst of a sinful people, and it's because of a sacrifice that was held once a year on a day called the Day of Atonement, in Hebrew, Yom Kippur. The Hebrew word for atonement, kippur, is sometimes used to mean to wipe clean. And we also see it used in other texts to pacify an angry king by giving him a gift to repay him for an offense against him so that the gift atones for the offense, wipes away the offense, and appeases the king's anger leading to the king extending forgiveness to the offender. What happened in the Day of Atonement? There was a ceremony in which the high priest would take two goats. One goat would be sacrificed and its blood put on the altar in the tabernacle to atone for the sins of the people of Israel. The other goat, the high priest would go to the other goat, lay his hands on the goat, and pray, confessing the sins of Israel over the goat, putting the sins of Israel onto the goat so that the goat would then be led outside of the city, out into the wilderness, where it would die alone, all by itself. Was it truly a goat that saved the people of Israel from their sins? No, the goat pointed forward in time to the cross, to Jesus Christ, the true scapegoat, who God's word tells us was led outside of the city, hung on a tree and left to die all alone, deserted by his followers, deserted by his community, all by himself. Later in Israel's history, The prophet Isaiah wrote the servant songs, which are recorded in the book by his name. And they serve as the clearest prophecies that Jesus would come to serve as the substitute once for all to absorb God's wrath for the sins of others. In Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, and then in verse 12, the the prophet Isaiah wrote this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, do you see the parallel to the scapegoat, laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. And then in verse 12, because he poured out his soul to death 
and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We know that the suffering servant pointed forward in time to Christ because he tells us so. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus quotes one of these verses to show that they pointed to him when he told his disciples, for I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me, quote, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Throughout his ministry on earth, Jesus taught that in his death, he would serve as the substitute so that his followers could find forgiveness. In theology, we call this penal substitutionary atonement. Penal as in penalty, substitutionary as in Jesus came to be our substitute and to atone for our sins, to have them wiped away so that we could find forgiveness. Paul ties this all up very nicely in a passage in Romans chapter 3. There Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us. All of us in this room, all of us in history, all of us who are about to come, everyone except Christ, all of us fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is declared right with God, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, that is an atonement by his blood, to be received by faith. That is how we receive the atonement. That is how we receive the forgiveness. It's through faith in Jesus Christ as the suffering servant, as the scapegoat, as the Passover lamb. So God not only saves believers from the penalty for our sin, he also saves us from the power of sin, the power of sin that enslaves us. From Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 7, God's word says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him into his death. We were buried with him there, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we if we have been united united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified. Let me read that again. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, our body of sin, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Let me read that again. Enslaved so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. For those who believe in the message of the cross, the word of the cross, their slavery to sin, God's word says, has been broken. They were born into this world with a sinful nature, and sin ruled over them like a master, like an addiction that couldn't be stopped. 
But when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ and the message of the cross, they are joined with Christ on the cross and that sinful nature dies with him and their addiction to sin dies with him. And then as he's raised from the dead, as we'll hear more about on Sunday, as he's raised to new life, the believer is also raised to new life with Christ as their new master, finally freed from the power of sin, freed to pursue love, freed to pursue the good works that he has laid out for them to do for him, freed to love God and to love their neighbors. That's the saving power of God that is in the cross that saves us from the power of sin as well as the penalty of sin. So why do people reject it? Why is it that people reject the message of the cross? Because the message of the cross turns our world upside down. It's the great reversal. Our readings on Palm Sunday and our readings from earlier in this service show that many people in Jesus' time expected the Son of God to be a conquering hero, that he would come to liberate them from the Roman Empire. And if he did end up on a cross, surely he would have the power to bring himself off that cross, wouldn't he? As one person we read this morning said, quote, save yourself and come down from that cross. But I must admit, I'm not much different from that crowd. We live in a culture that values winning and hates losing. And my heart is often more conformed to this culture than it is to God's word and the message of the cross. Many of us find our happiness and our sadness rise and fall on the winning and losing of our sports teams, on the winning and losing of our political parties, on the progress or regress of our social causes. If we're getting ahead at work or getting ahead in school, we're pretty happy. When our kids are doing well in school, when our kids are doing well in sports and their teams are winning, we're doing okay but how quickly our happiness is derailed into despair by the smallest failures, let alone the really big failures when they come. So when we come to church or a friend tells us that, hey, there is a God and he sits on a throne and he's sovereign over the entire universe, but he sent his son into this world And when he came, he didn't immediately stop all the wrongdoing. He didn't immediately stop all the school shootings. He didn't immediately stop cancer. He didn't immediately stop my parents' divorce. But instead, he came and washed people's feet, his followers. He washed their feet. And then he let himself be killed by those who are described as the people he created. That is a stumbling block. That doesn't fit in our human categories of strength and power. Dr. Justin Holcomb, one of my seminary professors, has written 
Quote, Jesus' lowly service, that is, washing the feet of his followers, is a practical picture of how Jesus inverts our normal view of authority, of dignity, and power. Jesus' unselfish act of service was a picture of God's upside-down approach to our world and to us. The ultimate picture of this is Jesus' humbling himself to endure death on a cross. Why? To bring us cleansing through his substitution in our place, close quote. Justin is pointing out to us that God has established a biblical pattern in his word, in his cosmic framework for dealing with our sin and our rebellion against him. That pattern maintains perfect justice that every sin, every single sin, be atoned for while also maintaining his abundant love for his creation and his people and his desire to be reconciled with them through the cross. That is what the great reversal accomplishes. That's what the cross accomplishes. Those who find that in this world they are weak and oppressed and dependent on Christ's sacrifice, they will be lifted up. They will be glorified in the new heavens and the new earth. While the proud and the strong and the self-sufficient in this life who reject the cross as foolishness will perish, eternal separation in torment and darkness. Some see the cross and ask, why? Why is a sacrifice necessary? Why can't God just forgive us? Tim Keller, a pastor and theologian who planted a church in Manhattan and has written at least several books for skeptics, points out that extending forgiveness means that the forgiver must bear the cost of the wrong instead of the wrongdoer. Keller gives us one example. If someone, if, he gives us many examples, but he gives us first this simple example. If someone backs out of their friend's driveway, this isn't the right quote yet, sorry. <laughs> if someone backs out of their friend's driveway and hits a closed gate, knocking it down and knocking the brick fence that the gate is connected to, knocking it down, if the driver then gets out and says, friend, owner, please forgive me, then the owner is going to have to bear the cost of fixing the gate, of fixing the fence, and returning it to the condition that it was in before. One or the other, someone is going to have to bear the cost of fixing the brokenness and repairing the relationship between the friends. So it is with our offense to God. Keller also argues that a God of cheap grace who is simply willing to give people a pass would be meaningless for oppressed peoples. How could God encourage people, like families of those murdered inside Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, how could God encourage them 
to forgive the racist shooter that murdered their family members if they worshiped a God of cheap grace who gives away forgiveness for nothing. To do so would be to say that their murdered family members didn't matter, didn't matter to God, but oh, how they do. God honors suffering, and he honors the suffering of all victims by honoring justice and saying that the wrong is real and it must be paid for in order to extend forgiveness. When Jesus suffered for us, he was honoring justice. So while the human reason, while human reason might dismiss sin and ask for a free pass, God's desire for justice and love does not permit that. Here's a more lighthearted example. In one Calvin and Hobbes comic strip from Christmas time, 1990, Calvin, the boy who usually represents the tea in tulip and speaks, for the bo- vo- speaks with the voice of fallen sinful boys everywhere, Calvin said to his tiger Hobbes, I'm getting nervous about Christmas. Hobbes responded, you worried you haven't been good? Calvin said, that's the question. It's all relative. What's Santa's definition anyway? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? I haven't killed anybody. That's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. I didn't start any wars. Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say I should get a lot of presents? Hobbes responded, but maybe good is more than an absence of bad. Calvin, see, that's what worries me. (laughs) Calvin's hope that sin should be judged on a curve represents the world's misunderstanding that gaining favor with God is based on our performance rather than the performance of our substitute for us. Calvin also questions God's standard. He tries to rationalize that Santa ought to judge him as good as relative to all those bad kids he knows who've committed the big ticket sins. And that's the tendency of those of us like me who've grown up in the church. Since we have tend to be grown up in the church, we tend to be raised on the, I won't say moral side of the spectrum, but the less immoral side of our culture's spectrum. And we have this tendency to reduce religion to a set of rules, a set of rules to be followed. And then we self-judge ourselves as moral in relation to those people we know at school or those people we know at work. Surely God's going to look at us and then look at them and he's going to pick us, right? No. God in both the Old Testament as well as the New Testament says, be holy for I am holy. He says that we must have a perfect righteousness to be in a relationship with him who has perfect righteousness. In Acts, in Romans 3, the passage I read earlier says that we can't make ourselves righteous by following the laws and following the rules that we've made up. It's not possible. Our performance has already fallen short and it will always fall short. We can only be found righteous 
by accepting the righteousness that's offered through the cross, where our righteous, our righteous substitute offers us his righteousness in exchange for us giving up our sin to him. Have you given your sin to Christ? Have you asked him to take it? He would be pleased to, God's word says in verse 21. Summarizing the world's objection to the cross as foolishness, the world cannot understand the upside-down economy of the way God deals with sin. And it can't understand the weakness of Christ on the cross and how it could possibly be stronger than the best performance of man. So now we turn from considering God's wrath for our sin to considering his love for us. I'm going to read this quote from Keller one time that Pastor Bale already read for us because I've read it multiple times this week and every time I read it, it affects my heart. Tim Keller is summarizing two chapters of John Stott's book on the cross and Keller summarizes those two chapters this way. He says, Jesus went to the cross to die for our salvation. That is at the same moment a profound statement of our sin, telling us that we are so flawed and so guilty that nothing less than the death of the Son of God can save us. But at the same time, the highest and strongest expression of his love for us and our value to him. The cross is an assurance of God's love for you, an objective reminder to us when we aren't subjectively feeling it. If the Bible did not define God's love for us with the cross, we would have a hard time understanding what his love looked like and whether or not we had encountered it. While we tend to think of love as a feeling, God's love is an action, an action of self-sacrifice. His love came first. His love came before we were born. It came before our sin. It came before everybody's sin. God created Adam and Eve with the free will to either sin or not to sin. But before he created them in his foreknowledge, knowing that they would sin, Ephesians 1 says that God the Father chose us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. Before the world, he had already chosen us in Christ and in love predestined us for adoption as his sons and daughters, again, through Jesus Christ. That is why Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 says that Jesus Christ is the lamb who was slain even before the foundation of the world. The cross was God's plan A. It was not his plan B. The one who loves moved towards the object of his love. Do you sense his love moving towards you tonight? Verse 21 again says, he is pleased to call us. Call us to what? To love his son whom he loves. When he calls us, scripture says, he gives us new hearts. 
He puts in us new spirits and causes us to be born again so that we can see Christ on the cross no longer as the foolishness of this world, but as the power of God, the wisdom of God to save us. God's love transforms us. God's love for us transforms our hearts, not only to love him in Christ, but also to love our neighbors, to love others. 1 John chapter 4 says, we love because he first loved us. He loves us sacrificially, and he calls us to love others sacrificially. And there are a multitude of ways that I could apply this, but let me leave us with one before I conclude. It is an act of love to tell others the message of the cross. Because in the word of verse 18, it is the power of God to save them from perishing. So here I'm talking to Christians. Are you and I willing to love others sacrificially and bear the rejection of being considered foolish for believing this upside-down message. It doesn't require eloquence to share the message of the cross. In verse 17, which is right before the passage I read tonight, Paul says he didn't use eloquent words to bring people to faith in Christ when he preached, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power as the Holy Spirit applies that message to the heart of the person hearing it. We have to remember that the power to save is in the word, in the words of the cross, in the words of scripture, not in our persuasive abilities. That is true about below average preachers like me who trust not in the power of my words, but trust in the power of God's word that is being shared. It's also true for friends telling their classmates or their coworkers over coffee. It's true for moms and dads. It's true for grandmas and grandpas telling children about the story of the cross, the message of the cross while they're stuck in traffic on the beltway and they've got nowhere else to get away to. It's for parents in that child's room before they go to bed and they really open up and they finally want to talk. If they want to hear a story, tell them the story of the cross. Tell them over and over again. It's better than every, any fairy tale because it's true. It's not fiction, it's non-fiction. And you know what? It's truly a supernatural story. God does not expect us to be eloquent especially with children. We tell our children many times during the day that they're sinners because they've disobeyed their parents or they've disobeyed whatever rule there, there is. But do we tell them every single time that Jesus went to the cross to remove their guilt and to reconcile them in their relationship with him as well as their relationship with us when we teach them how to ask for forgiveness? And should our children come to profess faith in Jesus Christ, do we stop telling them the message of the cross? No. Love calls us to remind them again 
and again. Just as I need to be reminded again and again to look at the cross and to remember God's love for me. That God loves me that much. We need to tell our friends, we need to tell our children the story of the cross. We need to tell our children as preschoolers. We need to tell them as middle schoolers. We need to tell them as high schoolers, especially, and as college students. When we see them trying to justify themselves in the eyes of the world with their performance as students, as athletes, as musicians, we need to remember that despite our children's, despite our friends' apparent self-confidence, even stubbornness, they feel the way we feel. They feel all the shame that our culture offers them for their weight, for how their skin looks, for their GPA, for their SAT scores, that there's always going to be a better student There's always going to be a better athlete. There's always going to be a better musician. There's always going to be a better person in our workplace than us. There's always going to be a better person in our career field than we are. And we need to tell each other that if we put our identity in seeking the happiness, our happiness in the eyes of the world, and that our happiness is always dependent on winning, then those things, those idols, those false gods, they will not save us. They will only shame us. But if we put our identity in Christ and his love, and we remember that our performance is not ours, but it's our substitutes in the eyes, the eternal eyes, the only eyes that truly matter, then we will be saved from shame, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Then we can be freed. We can be freed to pursue our vocations. We can be freed to to pursue everything in life, freed from the power of sin and shame, freed to pursue them as other avenues to bring glory to our Savior in these opportunities that he has provided for us. So in conclusion, Paul tells us that the word of the cross divides everybody into two camps, those who believe and are being saved and those who reject it and are perishing. Which camp do we find ourselves in tonight? If you're in the first camp that believes and is being saved, then be reminded of how much God loves you, that he saved you from the penalty of sin. He saved you from the power of sin as your master and your addiction. Now we should go and tell others. If you're in the other camp, the second camp, those who have not accepted it, do you hear God calling you tonight? Listen for him. Consider responding to him. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we have read your word and we have heard it explained. Through the movement of your Holy Spirit, apply it to our hearts 
the rest of this evening, the rest of this weekend as we lead up to Easter Sunday and your resurrection. Reveal your wisdom to our minds and your love to our hearts. Call us so that we may see the upside-down world of the cross as the revelation that restores your creation and saves us. We trust in the power of your word and not mine. In Christ's name we pray, amen.